Isaiah chapter 41. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. Let them approach. Then let them speak. Let us, draw, let us together draw near for judgment. Who stirred up one from the east whom victory meets at every step? He gives up nations before him so that he tramples kings underfoot. He makes them like dust with his sword, like driven stubble with his blow. He pursues them and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. The coastlands have seen and are afraid. The ends of the earth tremble. They have drawn near and come. Everyone helps his neighbor and says to his brother, be strong. The craftsman strengthens the goldsmith and he who smooths with the hammer, him who strikes with the anvil, saying of the soldering, it is good. And they strengthen it with nails so that it cannot be moved. But you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I have chosen, the offspring of Abraham, my friend, you whom I took from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest corners, saying to you, you are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Behold, all who are incensed against you shall be put to shame and confounded. Those who strive against you shall be as nothing and shall perish. You shall seek those who contend with you, but you shall not find them. Those who war against you shall be as nothing at all. For I, the Lord your God, hold your right hand. It is I who say to you, fear not. I am the one who helps you. Fear not, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. Your Redeemer is the Holy One of Israel. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them, and you shall make the hills like chaff. You shall winnow them, and the wind shall carry them away, and the tempest shall scatter them. And you shall rejoice in the Lord, in the Holy One of Israel you shall glory. When the poor and needy seek water, and there is none, and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. I will open the rivers on the bare heights and fountains in the midst of the valleys. I will make the wilderness a pool of water and the dry land springs of water. I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. I will set the desert in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together, that they may see and know, may consider and understand together that the hand of the Lord has done this. The Holy One of Israel has created it. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is flawless. Amen. One of my projects for a client last year was to develop a coaching plan for their managers. More companies are moving away from annual reviews in favor of more frequent conversations about job performance and professional development. Our task was to build something simple. After all, if the goal is to encourage people to be engaged both in their daily work and in their long-term professional goals, if you make it too complicated, it distracts from those goals and just becomes one more thing for people to do. 
So we designed a system around two questions. The first, who are you talking to? recognizes that our different personalities and experiences mean that we're going to hear and communicate differently. Some hear everything is glass half full. Others describe themselves as realists. Some people want a lot of detail. Others find the details exhausting. Some are optimistic about the future. Others are worn down with disappointment. It matters to whom we are speaking. The second question is, what needs to be said? To tailor a message to an individual, you have to start with a message. Is this a conversation about improving performance or about giving teammates an opportunity to contribute? Is it about the next skill or capability required for a promotion? Or is it about improving enough to keep the job? We're two chapters in to the second section of Isaiah, a forward-looking section that offers comfort to God's future people in exile. The two questions, to whom am I speaking, and what needs to be said, are important. But this morning, Isaiah will show us a third question, the answer to which matters even more. God's people need strength for times of difficulty. While Judah's experience in the exile is indeed traumatic, and it requires great strength, they haven't exactly cornered the market on suffering. The work that God will call them to do, returning from exile to rebuild the temple, it will require physical, emotional, and spiritual strength. And so does the work he calls us to do and all who walk with Christ. When the Spirit of God gives Isaiah something to say for the strengthening of our spines, his thoughts, one author says, move in two directions. God's exclusive sovereignty over history and God's gracious eagerness to bear our burdens along the way. You see, when we need to be made strong, what matters most is who is speaking. That's not to say the audience is irrelevant. In fact, it's actually quite interesting what happens here in chapter 41. In chapter 40, God's promises of comfort were for his people in Judah. He offered himself as the covenant provider of power, to the faint, and strength to the weary. But chapter 41 doesn't begin with God's covenant people. Listen to me in silence, O coastlands. Let the peoples renew their strength. This is a reference to the Gentile nations. The hope and the strength that are available to Judah are available to anyone who will put their trust in God. Here, God is setting his case before the nations and challenging them to consider the source of their strength. In verse 1, he invites all peoples to draw near, to listen to his case, to speak their own case, and then to consider what can really make you strong. 
This is one of those beautiful times in the Old Testament when you see glimpses of the expansiveness of God's grace for Jew and Gentile. From among the nations, he doesn't have many takers yet. But that's exactly why he's getting to work. Isaiah just told us, last chapter, the valleys would be lifted up and the hills made low. Remember, he told us that things would be turned upside down and inside out to prepare the way for God's glory throughout the world. This invitation to the nations, this offer of gospel hope outside of Judah's gates is one of those things. God is intervening in history. And he always does. It's his story to write. Why are we so surprised when he writes it? Long before the Persian emperor of the east, Cyrus, was born, Isaiah says here that God is going to raise him up for his purposes. That's verses 2 through 4. Cyrus and Persia will appear to come from nowhere and then quickly conquer the near eastern world. But Cyrus didn't come out of nowhere. He came from God. Many people entertain ideas of the watchmaker God, one who created this world and wound it up only to step back and never intervene again. History in that model is just cyclical. It's the aimless events of the past repeating themselves indefinitely and without purposeful momentum. But here, prophetically, powerfully, God shows us that he who was the first cause of all things continues to work out his purposes. That he, through whatsoever comes to pass, is moving history forward purposefully then and later through Cyrus and even now in our lives. He will be moving history forward purposefully in the exile. He will be moving history forward purposefully in the reign of Cyrus. And he's moving history forward purposefully as he works in our lives even today. And the things that happen are unsettling. Mountains are leveled. Valleys are raised up. His work in history is disruptive to our plans and agendas. Nations and empires rise and fall. Families created in joyful union and torn apart in grief. Churches planted and grow and churches persecuted and destroyed. Unjust laws struck down to protect human life and lives destroyed by laws demanding evil be called good and good called evil. And in the midst of all of this, God invites the peoples into a conversation. In such disruptive and unsettling times, God is asking you this morning, what makes you strong? Verse 5, the coastlands have seen and are afraid. One of the reformers pointed out that most people bounce back and forth between two extremes. When times are good, they give themselves all the credit. 
And when times are bad, that strength is suddenly replaced with either anger and bitterness or blinding and irrational fear. But in neither case are peoples inclined to remember God. In the disruptive wake of God's acting in history, verses 5 through 7, the nations turn to self-reliance and to idolatry. They'll find their own way out of this. They'll spend energy and resources trying to feel as if they're in control. And the question is, where do you find strength? And their answer is from idols made with hammer and anvil and strengthened with nails. Can you imagine anything more ridiculous? When we turn to ourselves rather than to God... In times of trial, this is exactly what we're doing. And it's ridiculous. It's like we're surrounding our house with those little plastic army men and believing now we're safe from intruders. It would be laughable. It should be laughable. But instead, we say to ourselves, it is good. We rely on things that cannot make us strong. And we say to one another, be strong. The author, theologian G.K. Chesterton had the great line that when people stop believing in God, they don't believe in nothing. They believe in anything. God is calling out to the nations, to those who need strength in times of trials, to those who look over the horizon and see reasons to be afraid And God says to them, what makes you strong? Is it self-reliance? I can handle this myself. Is it idolatry? Some not God, like wealth or family or health or reputation or intelligence. God's challenging us to look at difficult areas in our lives and ask the question, Honestly, what do I think makes me strong? Unbelievers turn to themselves and to their idols. And God is calling out to his people that in times like these, we're to turn to him for strength. Verse 8, but you, Israel, my servant Jacob, whom I've chosen, fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed. For I am your God. I will strengthen you. The passage offers three reassurances that God will be our strength. And why? Why does God do this? Consider this. God longs for us to draw strength from his greatness. Do you see here how he lingers over his commitments to his people? He chose us. He called us. He's committed to us. He lingers because people who have a sense of God's commitments in their hearts are unstoppable. Unlike idols, God can make us strong. The first reassurance comes from the fact that he's no idol. And that he is the one speaking. He is the one offering 
help. We're not relying on objects made and strengthened with nails. We're not relying on little plastic army men. Yes, there will be slings and arrows directed at us in this life. And for every one of them, God is our defender. The psalmist wrote, God is my shield and my buckler. Kids, you know what a shield is, but have you heard of a buckler before? A buckler is the plate that you wear on your forearm so that when you lunge to attack and somebody counterattacks, you're protected. You see, God is our protection and our strength when we're on defense and when we're on offense. And people who have a sense of that in their hearts are unstoppable. Adults, are you on defense or offense in life right now? Do you remember that God is your strength in both? We feel like we're on the defensive a lot in this life. But God also reassures us that he has offensive work for us to do. Remember that preparing the way for his glory? After he reiterates, fear not, I'm the one who helps you, there's verse 15. Behold, I make of you a threshing sledge. You shall thresh the mountains and crush them. You shall carry them away, you sh- carve them away. You shall rejoice in the Lord. We cannot do this in our own strength or by trusting in the strength of idols. But only by the strength of God, we are made strong enough to prepare the way for his glory. John the Baptist could do it because of the power of God. And we do that same work by that same power. We cannot prepare the way for the glory of God if the way that we do our work is to obtain the glory of men. We cannot prepare the way for the glory of God if our marriages, using our own strength, are trying to point the world to God's strength. Our children's children will draw their strength from what's handed down to them. Will that inheritance be built on the promises of God? or by a craftsman with hammer and nails. Isaiah's talking, as another pastor put it, about the gospel of human weakness triumphing over opposition and our timid faith overcoming the world. That is what prepares the way of the Lord, and that cannot be done in our own strength. That's the point of verse 14, very clearly. Fear not, you worm of Jacob. You men of Israel, apart from God's help in our own strength, we're about as useful as worms. Worms cannot make straight in the desert a highway for God. Worms cannot lift up valleys and make the rough places a plain. The mighty men of Israel can. The people of God trusting in his strength can. And what's the difference between the two? I am the one who helps you, declares the Lord. A third reassurance begins in verse 17. 
When the poor and needy seek water and there is none and their tongue is parched with thirst, I, the Lord, will answer them. I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. You know, in the work that God has called you to do, in the trials and difficulties of life, you will not always feel strong. You will feel tired and hungry and thirsty. And you will look around and you will not see any relief in sight. And you will not know how you can live with hope for even one more day. And that's when God says, he will provide for you. And what he will provide is himself. He will be our refreshment. Look how many times in these verses God says, I will. I will answer them. I will open rivers. I will make the wilderness a pool of water. I will put, I will set, and most importantly, I, the God of Israel, will not forsake them. The most difficult trials will make us feel forsaken. Your Savior, Jesus, knows what it's like to feel forsaken in your darkest hour. But here is God's reassurance. I will not forsake them. When you feel like things will never change, he will be your hope. When you feel like you cannot do what is asked of you, he will be your power. When you feel like you cannot endure and survive one more attack, he will be your shield because he will be glorified. And he is glorified when his people see their need and instead of turning to one another, instead of turning to themselves, instead of turning to their idols, he is glorified when we turn to him. When he makes us strong, all the glory is his. He's not looking for self-made men and self-made women. He's looking for lives that want to be a testimony to his glory. A great preacher of the past suggested that this is one reason God brings such difficult trials into our lives, such excruciating pain to which we say, how could God ask this of me? For us, it's trying and difficult. And we, we in it see no other means of relief. We lose all hope that anything else could help us. And that's what God wants, because that's what's right. Nothing else can help us. It's an opportunity to display his glory when things seem impossibly broken and utterly desperate. He alone can make us strong. And when things aren't so bad, let's be honest, we often forget that's the case. On one side of the scales, we stack up all of the things that are working against us, all of the things that give us cause for fear and doubt, all the things that make hope seem foolish. And against it on the other side of the scales is just this one thing. The Lord is with us. 
And that's why he tells us over and over and over again not to fear. It matters who is being spoken to. It's glorious that God's offer of hope and strength goes out to the whole world. Judah should trust in God because his promises are for them. And we should trust in God because those same promises are for all who believe. And the message, what's being said? This also matters greatly. We are weak and under siege, so the message is one of strength. We're needy, so the message is one of provision. We're under attack, and the message is one of defense. We're inadequate for the task of preparing the way. And the message is that he will make us useful and powerful tools in his hands. We are afraid, and he will give us joy. But that message reveals why the most important thing in this morning's passage isn't the audience or the message. It's the speaker. Another wrote, Isaiah wants to win the glad consent of our hearts that one true God exists, that he is involved in our lives, and that he can carry us through everything. Brothers and sisters, what are the things that you aren't trusting God to carry you through? Is it your future provision? Raising your children? Transforming your marriage? Salvation for the souls of your loved ones? Living for Christ in an anti-Christ world? We have much to do in these areas, all of them. We were not made a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth to sit around with nothing to do. We work hard Save diligently and give generously because these are the means that God will use to provide for our futures. We spend every ounce of energy we can muster bringing up our children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. We challenge them to follow Christ even when it's hard. We show them the joy of our salvation and the privilege of worship. We apologize to them and in front of them, modeling what forgiveness and repentance look like. In our marriages, we love our wives with short accounts and no repayment for unlovable moments. We wash them in the word. We encourage them by our love for them toward hope and joy. Wives respect their husbands honoring and supporting our callings, inspiring us to sacrificial service, modeling Christ's forgiveness and acceptance as we regularly miss the mark. We study God's word. We pray for the lost. We consider our lives as testaments to his glory and not our own. We witness to Christ by word and deed in the workplace and in our schools and in our families. 
We forgive in an unforgiving world. We have joy in a bitter and disappoint among a bitter and disappointed people. We offer hope in an age of darkness. There's a lot we have to do in response to and far outside of our own trials and difficulties. We were not made a threshing sledge, new, sharp, and having teeth to sit around with nothing to do. But we can do it. And we can do it without fear. Because we do it not in our own strength, but in his. We have a lot of work to do. Mountains leveled, valleys lifted up, a highway for the glory of the Lord in this world. In every area of life, we have a lot to do. What do we think will make us strong?